Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Tully for History 311. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Great Depression. We're going to be talking about the Great Depression. Uh, this week I believe we're going to have at least two podcasts. In fact, no, no, at least. Uh, we will have two podcasts, one about the Great Depression, the other one about World War II. So uh, go ahead and uh, click on the, the PowerPoint on Moodle and you will see uh, kind of a famous contrast, kind of a fam famous contrast. Uh, basically you have African Americans in a bread line during the Great Depression uh, standing in front of a billboard that says there's no way like the American way with a happy white family. Now, to be fair, uh, most white families are also suffering during the Great Depression, but African Americans really had it worse. Uh, there's no real two ways about it. Uh, African Americans really had it bad during the Great Depression. Um, significantly worse than their white counterparts. African Americans were more likely to have... Um, uh, yeah, unemployment, uh, lower wages, uh, more likely to suffer than their white counterparts. So the Great Depression, go over one slide. Uh, what is Great Depression? It's when the stock market crashed. Actually, the stock market crashing isn't what really caused the Great Depression. The stock market crashing caused the banks to close, and when banks go under, that screws over businesses, which screws over everybody. Um, a lot of it has to do with speculation and the fact that the stock market was not particularly well regulated during this time period. There's also a very high difference, very high level of inequality in terms of income, with the gap between rich and poor being exceptionally high during this time period. Across the board, most Americans are not living very well, but those who are living very well are living, you know, cuckoo banana pants good. As I mentioned, it is harder times for African Americans, all right? African Americans have it way worse in the Great Depression than pretty much anybody else in America. Not worse than anybody else in the world. That, that, that honor, quote-unquote, goes to a place like Germany or Europe after World War I. But in the United States, African Americans have it much, much worse. A lot of it has to do with uh, the market crashing, particularly in terms of cotton and sugar, which are two of the most common crops for sharecroppers. Uh, because everything crashes, because the price goes down, because demand goes down, because manufacturers aren't being open, because they don't, they've run out of capital, because the banks close, nobody needs cotton. This is how sharecroppers get paid. And basically, uh, if a landowner does have cotton production, uh, of course they would cut the, uh, the sharecroppers' uh, ability to grow first, that, you know, they'd get rid of them, or also tenant farmers. So, African Americans, who make up a disproportionately large number of sharecroppers, but not all, uh, they are hurting quite bad. Honestly, unemployment is probably the main issue for most African Americans. Um, for instance, those in the industrial north, they're also suffering through very high unemployment. Uh, you have this concept of last hired, first fired. Also, most African American workers are not operating under a union they uh, are generally as strike breakers. They're getting paid less than their white counterparts, even though they're getting paid more than they would have gotten as a sharecropper in the South. It's still pretty bad. Uh, unemployment for African Americans is quite high. Um, they aren't doing specific studies of African American unemployment in this time period, so it's a lot of estimation. But depending on the industry, they do do industries, but not across uh, all African Americans. Uh, in various industries, you have anywhere from 38 to 80% unemployment. Uh, that is bad. That is exceptionally bad for African Americans. Okay, well, what about getting relief? What about, uh, you know, charitable organizations? Well, 
that's also a problem. That's also a problem. Um, before this time, the federal government did not get involved in relief efforts directly. Uh, the idea of a welfare state, that sort of thing, was not seen as something that's very good. Uh, part of that has to do with Herbert Hoover, who was president in this time period. He says, if we get people dependent upon the government in a time of crisis, they're never going to get off government relief. Uh, it's basically we're going to have a perpetual uh, group of people who are highly dependent upon the government for everything. Uh, that That is, uh, you know, that's something they did. So instead, they decided to rely upon, uh, you know, individual charitable organizations. The problem with that is that the problem is way too big. I mean, these charity groups, they have very good intentions. Uh, they're trying to do the best they can. The problem is, it's just too big of an issue. Uh, the Great Depression is large. It's much larger than any one group could ever possibly hope to handle by themselves. So, all right, let's say the state and local government's going to try something. Well, that doesn't really work out either because taxes have gone down. Uh, revenue has pretty much dropped across the board for state and local governments. Uh, they, I guess they could try to sell bonds, but nobody really wants to buy a bond in this time period because people just don't have the cash. So because of the effort, being, the jobs being so big, uh, the, the relief, the demand is so big, most, most people don't really get that much relief efforts. So in the midst of this, the NAACP is still trying to do things for civil rights. Uh, in the 1930s, they're still trying to do things for civil rights. Um, they're taking more of an active leadership role. Uh, beforehand, they were – sorry, that's my chair squeaking. Beforehand, they were a bit more content to uh, just do the court thing on their own. Now they're becoming a bit more prominent. A lot of it has to do with Walter White. Uh, Walter White, I've mentioned him before. He is a longtime president of the NAACP. Uh, gets his start in the 30s. He 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 hangs around for a long time as president of the NAACP. Uh, he's an individual that, if you looked at him nowadays, you'd be like, "That's a white dude." He is uh, the last name of White is ironic. I believe he is a quadroon, possibly an octoroon, uh, which means he's only one fourth or one eighth uh, African American descent. However, the time period he's considered African American. His appointment did not really appease um, the people who thought that the NAACP was just for light-skinned people. Uh, to be fair to Walter White, though, he is a very persistent voice. Uh, he investigates a lot of lynchings, riots. Uh, basically, he's really trying to f lobby the federal government to get more involved with civil rights action. Um, that's the main thing that uh, Walter White does outside of the court stuff, which he's not in, directly in charge of, but in charge of the entire organization. He's really pushing the federal government to get more involved in civil rights. Now, in the midst of this, uh, Dubois actually kind of really breaks with the NAACP. There's no lack of a better term. Uh, basically, he feels the NAACP is a little bit too um, focused on civil liberties, uh, not changing the system as a whole, just kind of doing the window dressing. Uh, Dubois is arguing that basically the economic system as a whole is what's keeping African Americans down. He says we need to have radically change our, um, you know, elements of self-determination, which theoretically could be part of Garvey, but he's he's more separatist. He's like, basically, we need to really <laughs> make ourselves separate. We need to make ourselves separate in that regard, um, particularly in terms of finances. He says, unless we're talking about finances, it doesn't matter. Under Walter White, the NAACP is talking much, much more about you know government policy, uh, getting 
getting things changed in that regard. Uh, Dubois is now saying, you know what, we need to talk finances. Uh, that's something that actually tends to happen. Well, not tends to happen, but isn't unheard of for African-American uh, civil rights individuals. As they go on, they become more convinced that maybe there's something about the finances and the economy of the United States. And for African-Americans, that needs to be addressed before we can get a much larger uh, you know, venture into civil rights. So ironically, basically, Du Bois is now being criticized for being a segregationist, which, uh, you know, this idea of, of separatism, uh, other people said, now you've just become just like Garvey, you know, you hated Garvey, now you're saying things like we should become an economic nation within a nation, how is that different than Garvey whatsoever, you know, Du Bois, you're being a bit, um, oh, you're being a bit uh, hypocritical in that regard. Uh, du Bois, in turn, he becomes more socialist, uh, more I would say even more capital case S socialist as Dubois goes on and on. I uh, remember Dubois is, uh, an, he's a force in the civil rights movement until the sixties. He, he's around for quite a while, uh, lives to a very old age. Dubois does. He also resigns from the crisis, which is his literary magazine as part of the NAACP and pretty much starts criticizing the NAACP much, much more. Meanwhile, the NAACP is doubling down on the court stuff. Uh, despite the fact that they're getting a lot of criticism from people like Dubois, they're really doubling down on court things. Uh, guys like Charles Hamlin Houston uh, leads up their uh, legal department, leads up their legal department. A lot of NAACP campaigns uh, really trying to challenge all these various state and local laws, saying that they're unconstitutional. And the way that he does that is through the fact that Despite Plessy v. Ferguson saying that you know all all uh, institutions, all facilities for African Americans have to be separate but equal, he's showing that the state and local governments are spending a lot less money on African Americans. Therefore, they're in violation of the Constitution and the Supreme Court, uh, particularly with something like education. That's that's the big one. Uh, separate but equal is kind of costly, and the fact that in you know some southern states like Louisiana. Uh, black schools are getting about, you know, five cents on the dollar of every white school, despite having comparable populations. Basically, that's their way to argue it. They're arguing that to maintain separate but equal is going to be too expensive on the state. We should just do integration. Ironically, that's the same criticism that the train companies had when Plessy Ferguson was first passed. They just learned in time, um, we can give African Americans less, and nobody's really challenging this on the strong level. However, thanks to Houston and other people in the NAACP's legal department, they're now challenging it more directly. Uh, young Legal Eagle, who you definitely want to know about, who's definitely become very important, is a young man by the name of Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Thurgood Marshall is an African-American lawyer. Houston really wants Walter White to hire him. He's like, hey, he's the best lawyer we got around here. Uh, highly intelligent, uh, highly, highly great. Uh, basically, what he does, too, is he wants to end segregation in graduate and professional schools. This is an interesting one. Uh, basically, they want to argue that uh, certain states are not providing equal opportunities for African-Americans, particularly in things like medical schools and law schools. That's the big one. Medical schools and law schools. Uh, there are black lawyers. There are black doctors. And they, you know, if they're operating in a segregated society, they need to also have the opportunity to be you know, licensed and trained. That's part of separate but equal. Problem is, most southern states don't have a black medical school or a black law school. 
a lot of different, and this is what they get challenges. That's what Marshall is convinced. This is what we should challenge is this idea. A place like Oklahoma or Texas, they don't have separate law schools or separate medical schools for African-Americans. And so that's how they challenge it. Basically, they're telling the state, look, either you need to start your own med school for black people, which is highly expensive, or let black people into the white schools. Supreme Court ultimately decides in uh, 1938 in Gaines versus Canada, basically that uh, it's it's for a it's for a graduate school. I believe it's uh, it's a law school in, in Oklahoma. Don't hold me on that one. But in this decision, sorry, I just looked it up. It's a law school in Missouri. It's a law school in Missouri, not Oklahoma. That's a little bit later. Uh, basically, it said, hey, uh, states have to build a law school for African Americans. Uh, the states argue that there's not enough African Americans to warrant uh, building such a such a facility. However, in Gaines versus Canada, um, the Supreme Court said, "No, states, you have to do it. If you're going to provide it for one set of students, you have to provide it for all students." This really uh, made Marshall and the NAACP think, "Hey, you know, the Supreme Court is receptive to this. Maybe in time they'll be more okay with integration. I mean, at least they're allowing more African Americans to exist in this time period uh, as lawyers and things like that." Uh, for instance, if you see right there, uh, there's Marshall arguing a case. It just keeps on going. Now let's talk about FDR for a second. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is part of the reason why African-Americans switch from voting majority Republican to majority Democrat. Uh, he, he kind of starts it. He kind of starts it. Um, FDR really starts pushing African-American voters, hey, why don't you vote Democrat? What have the Republicans done for you? Uh, before this time, most African-Americans who could vote, still a big caveat, most African-Americans who could vote voted Republican because they're a party of Lincoln. And more importantly, they were not the party of like Jim Crow segregation of the South. However, because of the Great Migration, things like that, you have a new class of African-American voters who aren't necessarily bound by Jim Crow. Uh, that is one thing I will say about the North in this time period. They may have been very segregationist in terms of housing, but they tended to let African-Americans vote. And so FDR is really appealing to this new growing class of urban African-Americans in the North. Hey, why don't you vote Democrat? Republicans aren't going to give you anything. They haven't given you anything since Reconstruction. Um, why don't we get into this? The, the election of 1936 is pretty much the last election where African-Americans uh, were not a major voting block. After that, Afro-Americans do become a major voting block. Now, the problem with the New Deal programs, you know, FDR is promising African-Americans a lot of great stuff in terms of the New Deal. Uh, things like the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the NRA, uh, not the National Rival Association, but the National Recovery, Associ uh, National Recovery Act. The problem is uh, a lot of these New Deal programs were not very good to African-Americans. They were not very good to African-Americans. A uh, primo example is the Agricul Agricultural Adjustment Act. Uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, uh, we'll talk about that in just a second, why that's a problem. Um, still, there's some social change. You go one more. In the first 100 days, uh, Franklin Roosevelt does his you know, crazy New Deal programs. Really no plan. Just seeing what's going to work. Uh, problem is, he's making all these federal relief agencies that are not being fairly administered in the South, particularly the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Okay. The AAA was going to cause the price of crops to go up by paying uh, landowners not to grow stuff. Basically, it's, a, it's an old thing of supply and demand. They're going to give subsidies. 
you know, yes, you're capable of growing, you know, 20 acres of cotton, but we're only going to pay you to grow 10 acres of cotton. So the price of cotton is going to go up. It's artificial demand. And we're going to pay you some extra money to not grow something. The thing is, because there's so much sharecropping and, uh, you know, renters, you know, lease, uh, lease farmers, and the federal government is only dealing with landowners. So basically, the landowner is given money not to grow stuff. So, of course, they're not going to let the sharecroppers grow stuff. Uh, this is one of those times where it's very, very unfair to African-Americans, and pretty much sharecropping is killed by the Great Depression and later on in uh, mechanization. Uh, the AAA would also give loans to farmers to uh, buy big industrial machines like combines and harvesters and things like that, which also do the work of multiple people, and then you don't need sharecroppers, period, which upsets a lot of African-Americans. Still, Roosevelt is trying to be very egalitarian in terms of race, go over one slide. He does hire black professionals in the federal government. Not a ton, but a um, bit more than tokenism, if that makes sense. A bit more than tokenism. He also has what he calls his black cabinet. Uh, his black cabinet, it's a group of different black officials, uh, black you know, leaders in the African-American community who meet with him informally, kind of keep him abreast about what's going on with African-American issues. Uh, pretty much the first time since Theodore Roosevelt that African-Americans have had a sustained presence in the White House. Uh, the main thing this does is this gets Roosevelt more potential voters. Basically, it, it's bringing this up, this idea that Roosevelt is a good guy and maybe he can help out African-Americans, even though results left a lot to be desired, as we're going to see. Also, his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, was able to take much more uh, progressive stances, much more uh, extreme ex uh, stances on civil rights than FDR was. Because remember, at the end of the day, FDR is a Democrat, and he still has to work with members of his own party, uh, Southern Democrats, who were very racist, very segregationist. So Eleanor Roosevelt is able to take positions her husband's not able to. Uh, now, the second New Deal and the subsequent New Deals, they're much uh, more, you know, I don't know, accommodating to African Americans. Federal, federal government is still growing. Uh, 36 election, FDR goes a little bit leftward. I'm sorry, I said 36 earlier, I meant 32. Uh, does help gain more black allegiance to the party uh, with things like the WPA. Also, he says some things about we're going to get rid of racial discrimination, even though a lot of New Deal programs are still actually kind of racist uh, or discriminatory. Not really racist. Um, let's see. Uh, there is some changes with labor. There is some changes with labor. Uh, basically, look, more African-Americans start unionizing. I'm not going to get really deep into this because uh, we have a lot to cover this week because we're doing like two lectures. So I'm not going to cover this too, too much. That being said, though, uh, you do have more labor unions of African-Americans coming about in this time period. Uh, coming off the model that um, A. Philip Randolph does with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And also A. Philip Randolph is, he's working in a lot of these different unions. Going to become important in just a second. Uh, now, one group that also is growing with African Americans is the Communist Party. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is kind of interesting. Uh, the Communist Party is active during the Great Depression. Uh, in fact, communism's pretty, I don't want to say popular, but it's looking like, hey, there might be something to communism uh, after the Great Depression or during the Great Depression because, you know, the Great Depression sucked and they're thinking about radical change. Now, the Communist Party is starting to make overtures towards African Americans, uh, basically saying that, hey, we're not going to be racist. In fact, we're anti-racist. We're interracial. You know, a black person could have a position of leadership. 
you know, if somebody's overly racist, we're going to expel them. Uh, the problem that the Communist Party found is that although African-Americans were generally willing to join the Communist Party because of the anti-racist stuff, when it came to the finances, uh, they tended to be pretty pro-America, pro-capitalism. Uh, there's a great book called Hammer and Ho, which is about communists in rural Alabama amongst like African-American sharecroppers and things like that, which those are some words that you wouldn't think go together, rural Alabama communists, but yes, they do, black communists in Alabama. And it's kind of funny, if you read the communications of the Communist Party leaders, they get pretty upset because they find that all the farmers, you know, even though whenever they, all the uh, sharecroppers, when they join and they start hearing about like, what do they want to get out of this? They're like, oh yeah, I want my own farm. You know, I want something in my own name, my own private property, which is against communism. So it's pretty interesting to be said. Now, the communism gets a lot of press and a lot of notoriety because of the Scottsboro case. The, the Scottsboro boys, uh, they have the International Labor Defense, which is like their legal aid society. Uh, basically, it, there are a bunch of nine black youths who are riding a train. All right? They're hopping a freight train, kind of being the hobo life uh, in Alabama, and they are riding with two white women. They're riding with two white women. And when I say boys, that's not a derogatory term for like, oh, African-American uh, it's a fact that they are young. They are super young. If you go over one side, you'll see the pictures of them. I think the youngest is like 11. The oldest is like, you know, 17. Uh, they are very young. Anyway, uh, after they ride on the train together with the white women, uh, the white girls accuse them of raping. It was like a, like a gang rape. A gang rape. And uh, they get arrested for it. In fact, several of them get the death penalty, even though it's pretty obvious that there's not a lot of evidence for it. In fact, there's no evidence. The story keeps changing. It's fairly clear that they're innocent. Still, um, they get the death penalty for it. They get the death penalty for it. Uh, there are some court cases that uh, basically come out of this, going to the Supreme Court. The communists kind of take this on. Uh, the first one is basically they said they were not given good legal representation. Remember, you are in the United States, you are given the uh, right to an attorney. They said that these youths did not have an attorney. Uh, likewise, they were not given a jury of their peers. There's an all-white jury. That was, uh, they thought was unsympathetic for them. There were potentially black jurors, but they were kicked out. So they said that is not equal protection. Uh, like I said, uh, th this case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, which does make some changes, uh, particularly reiterating the right to counsel. Still, the Communist Party is the one group that kind of takes on their legal defense. And this, uh, you know, this gets the Communist Party some sympathies. It's also the reason why when we get into the civil rights movement, I guess next week, um, why, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, sorry, why uh, civil rights leaders are always accused of being communist. Uh, Dr. King is accused of being a communist all the time. A lot of this comes from the legacy of Scottsboro and also the fact that the Communist Party is willing to take an anti-racist stance. Now, one group that does not like the Communist Party is the NAACP. Uh, the NAACP really does not care for the Communist Party. They have uh, open protests. They, they pretty much have open hostility. Uh, you know, they, they, they didn't want to take the case of the Scottsboro Boys because they were accused rapists. The NAACP did. They had the chance. It's only when they passed that the uh, Communist Party took the case, uh, mainly because the NAACP said this is not good for respectability. NAACP is all about respectability, looking good. They don't think potential rapists are the look that their organization should have. Communist Party is also a bit more uh, grassroots. They, uh, you know, they're doing protests and marches and things like that. 
the NAACP in this time period. It's all about the court cases, all about being respectable, elite of the elite. Also, the NAACP asked quite a bit, hey, um, are the, is the Communist Party really dedicated towards, like, you know, being anti-racist stuff? Or are they really interested in, like, this big um, economic overthrow? You know, because theoretically, the heart of communism is economic stuff. So even if the Blas is getting more economic stuff, he's never a communist. He's a socialist, but he's not a communist. You also have groups that try to unify um, all these groups together, like, you know, despite the fact that they are all different organizations fighting for African-American rights. Uh, groups like the United Negro Congress, they really tried to get this going. Uh, John P. Davis is the one behind it. He's an economist. He's like, you know what? Maybe we could all link together to make a giant coalition of people that are anti-racism, pro-African-Americans. You know, we're all black. We're all fighting for black rights. Maybe we can set aside our differences and come together. Uh, 800 delegates meet in Chicago in 36. Pretty basic stuff. They want better job opportunities, improved housing, things like that. Uh, the problem is that the communist people who show up uh, does not play nice with everybody else. Uh, pretty much the Communist Party kind of overtakes this group, turns into a front for the Communist Party. Not really a unified effort, which is what they're going for. You have the communists kind of take over, kind of make it their own thing. Now, another thing going on in this time period, and something we're going to focus on for a little bit, is the Tuskegee study. You might have heard of this. You might have heard of this. But uh, the Tuskegee study is really bad. This is, this is up there for some of the worst abuses of racism, Jim Crow, whatever you want to call it in the South. Uh, basically, and it's done by the federal government, in Macon County, Alabama, a, a sharecropper county, a, a poor county, a rural county, a fairly black county, in, the, in Alabama's black belt. You might have heard Alabama's black belt called for the color of the soil, not for the color of the people's skin, but uh, is primarily African-American. Uh, basically, the U.S. Health Department is doing various, uh, sorry, Public of Health, uh, U.S. Public Health Service, it's the Health Department, it's the U.S. Federal Government. They decided they want to do experiments on people for syphilis. Uh, if you don't know what syphilis is, it's an STD, it's an STD. Uh, they, they don't have sex with these people, but they give it you know, to them like through a syringe. Uh, these sharecroppers are told, hey, you're going to get free health care. Instead, they are infected with syphilis. They are knowingly infected with syphilis. And although there are cures for syphilis, uh, not even that complicated cures, actually fairly common, easy to get, cheap cures for syphilis exist, um, they are given syphilis and they pretty much let them have syphilis so the health department could theoretically study it. Uh, they could study it. Uh, penicillin, like I said, it, it can cure syphilis. It's fairly common. Even in this time period, penicillin is very easy to get. Pretty much one shot of penicillin can cure syphilis. Uh, syphilis, if left untreated, though, is awful. Um, it's bad. Syphilis is one of the worst STDs. I mean, it's not as bad as AIDS, but like for like killing you, it's bad. Pretty much, like you can go insane. Syphilis can literally like deteriorate your mind. You'll go insane. It will cause death. It is It is not like herpes or something, which, you know, you have bumps on your body and that's about it. Uh, syphilis is a bad one. Syphilis is a bad one. And yet, and yet, these sharecroppers who have no idea they're getting syphilis, uh, you know, they're suffering from the effects. They're, they're going to the health department. It's the U.S. government. They think, hey, you know, the U.S. government is going to help us. I mean, this is not a local doctor. This is the honest God U.S. government. 
you know, giving us health care. And all the federal government knows the cure. I mean, penicillin, very available. Pretty much these black sharecroppers who are the most destitute are not treated for the disease for studying purposes. Basically, they wanted to study what syphilis would do to a body. Uh, this is horrible. This is horrible. Uh, this is probably one of the worst manifestations of racism in American science. Uh, this was kind of an open secret. This was done for 40 years. Like, for 40 years, these poor sharecroppers, they've been given syphilis. They're suffering from the effects of syphilis, and they're not being treated for syphilis, even though the treatment for syphilis is very easy. It's literally a penicillin shot, and they'll cure the syphilis. Uh, the later on, the U.S. government would pay a bunch of money to the descendants and also the survivors, who aren't really that many. Um, yeah, like... It, they paid them in, 90, in 1977. Uh, sorry, in 1997, uh, they apologized for them. They paid the survivors some money. Uh, you can see basically right here uh, the, the Tuskegee experiment going on. Uh, like I said, this is, this is you know, I'm not comparing it to the Holocaust because the Holocaust was way worse. But still, this is pretty awful. The fact that you're getting unknowing people, uh, this is the, probably the most uh, you know, vulnerable in society, and yet they're being subjected to it. So in all, like I said, this week's a little shorter. Well, we have multiple this week, but this lecture is a little shorter. Uh, some notable positive changes in the 30s, uh, mainly in groups like the NAACP coming together. Uh, they actually do have some success with cases like the Gaines versus Canada case. Uh, there are some interracial alliances among political and labor leaders, particularly with the Communist Party. Uh, they're more willing to work with African Americans. Uh, African Americans are also switching their support slowly but surely, from the Republican to the Democratic parties. Uh, and also, the New Deal kind of lays the foundation of what's going to come on later with World War II and finally the Civil Rights Movement. Um, Civil Rights Movement comes directly out of World War II. But in the midst of all that, we cannot bury the lead here. It's awful for African Americans. This is bad for African Americans. African Americans suffered significantly more during the Great Depression than their white counterparts. Um, New Deal programs had a lot of problems getting to white people. They, uh, sorry, to black people. Uh, things like the Agricultural Adjustment Act really screw over sharecroppers. Uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, which gives jobs to young men, uh, is race-based. Basically, they do not allow white uh, black people, period, in them. So, like I said, this is a time of transition, and we're going to move over into World War II in just a second. So, for that, Dr. Telly is saying goodbye for right now.